Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by IK Multimedia. IK Multimedia gives musicians access to the most famous and sought-after guitar gear and studio effects of all time with our Amplitude and T-Rex analog modeling software. Now, IK has created the ultimate all-in-one bundle for bands and engineers, the Total Studio 2 Max, combining all of IK's award-winning amps, effects, sounds, and more. It's everything you need to track, mix, and master your music. IK Multimedia, musicians first. For more info, go to www.ikmultimedia.com. And now your hosts, Joe Wanasek and A.L. Levy. This show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. Every month on Nail the Mix, we bring one of the world's best producers to mix a song from scratch from artists like Meshuga, Periphery, A Day to Remember, and Bring Me the Horizon. And we give you the raw multi-track so you can mix along. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of bite-sized mixing tutorials, and Portfolio Builder. Pro quality, multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio. You can find out more at nailthemix.com. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am your host, Joel Wanasek, and it is great to be back on the mic. I've been really, really, really busy making a bunch of really awesome courses and detailed, fantastic content for you guys like Career Builder and all these really cool things we've been talking about and you might have seen on the URMPPC or any of the other places that... Uh, we run our marketing. So it's great to be back on the mic. I've been busy and, you know, AL has been really kicking ass here on the podcast. So I feel like uh, I wanted to come back and just do a nice podcast. I have somebody on really special that's really interesting and we've got a lot of really awesome things to talk about that I think are going to be a little bit different and have a lot of value. So make sure you guys stick around and uh, let's dig into the weeds. So I brought on uh, my good buddy here, Mr. Leonard Skolnick, and Lenny works for Howard Benson. And Lenny has done, boy, a lot of great things. He works with a lot of artists. For example, um, Miyavi is one that Lenny and I have worked on. And I mix a lot of songs for Lenny, and Lenny is a fantastic producer out in LA. And he has a massive team of people that he works with and writes with. And there's a lot of stuff to talk about. So Lenny, man, how you doing? Joel, I'm doing great, man. Happy to be here. Thank you for... Well, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I know we've been talking about doing this for a long time. It's kind of funny. I probably talk to you four days a week anyway, but we've, <laughs> right? we've finally been able to, uh, to get an hour here. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, hey, look at the bright side. At least we're both working and kicking ass and having some fun. So I think I wanted to kind of dig in. I like the inspirational stuff to start out because, you know, probably a lot of these people that are listening to this aren't familiar with you and who you are, and they should be. So why don't you kind of tell your story? Because I think you've got a cool story. You know, you came up from New York and just tell us like where you came from, what your background is, how you got in with Howard and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so I... The early, the early, early stuff is like really typical, you know, in bands. I became a producer really because I couldn't sing. <laughs> and so <laughs> that's a great I, reason to, but I was a good writer, but I needed someone to, you know, to have to deliver the message. So that's really how I became a producer. And then Howard and I met very serendipitously and I have to give credit to his daughter, Harley. I... I went to Drexel University, which is where Howard went, and I was really different from a lot of the kids there in that I was really open about 
loving pop music and wanting to be successful. And oh, how dare you do that in the music industry? Yeah, Come on. And, and wanting to make music that reached a lot of people and wanting to make money, honestly. Like, I think as a kind of as a joke, but not really as a freshman, I remember we had to go around and it was like, what was your dream job? And I think I was like, right for Britney Spears. <laughs> oh, my God, that's amazing. You know, and everyone kind of looked at me like, what? Did he just say? And I was like, now look, yeah, I know she's still in the game. So if that goes down and I'm not on that mix, I'm gonna come find you. (laughs) Of course, you know, you'll be the first guy up. And matter uh, of fact, we're going to like kidnap anybody else that gets that text mix and make sure that I win. Because then like after I check that box off in my life, like I'm done. That's it. That's it. She's the queen. She's the queen. So, so. In any event, I built a, a little bit of a reputation like that, and and the school was looking for a kind a, a school spirit song, but like a poppy modern something that the kids would enjoy listening to and playing. And this other student with the greatest name of all time, Ari Winkleman, was in charge of the <laughs> was in charge of the project and he contacted me and my then production partner Dave Pettit and we wrote this song. And all in all, when I look back, it was pretty horrendous, you know. It was called Blue and Gold, but my roommate was a video uh, major and so we made a video and the school band had a version and you know we put this whole thing together and Harley was applying to Drexel Howard's daughter and she saw this video and she showed her dad and that just went in the archive right then I was asked to speak at the accepted students day where Harley happened to be in the audience with her father. And I mentioned that I had done the song for the school. He remembered it. He came up to me after the, you know, at the end of the event and we spoke and he offered me an internship after like 15 minutes. I was his first intern ever. And I just- That's crazy. It was like Howard Benson just walks up to you and he's like, hi, I'm Howard Benson. And you're probably like, holy shit, remain calm. Oh, no, seriously. Nice to meet you. Actually, the first thing he said to me was, do you know who I am? (laughs) 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 And I was like, yeah, I know who you are, you know? And I just remember running back to my, you know, the- I lived in uh, in a row house in Philly at the time, and I just remember running back, and no one I lived with was a music major, so nobody knew what I was talking about, but I was, like, convinced, and I was right. I was like, guys, my life just changed. <laughs> and wow. And I was right. It was so amazing. what do you think that you said to Howard that made him decide it was time for him to take his first intern on? I don't know, truly. I truly don't know, but... You know, Howard invested a lot of time in me uh, over the years. I've worked with him now for close to nine years. And um, he has mentioned to me that it wasn't as much the material but that I produced in the beginning, but as much that I finished things and, and I could put complete projects together. And that's an amazing point. And I I feel like I noticed that, like when you tell that story to me, the first thing that sticks out is I think about leadership. Like, look, you took initiative, you put together a freaking team, you got a big project done. You went way above 
the you know the beck and call of what was expected and you you know you turn it into a massive production and no one asked you to do it and, and like you know held a gun to your set head and said hey look you have to do this if you want to graduate you were just like boom you know so that shows real really a, an amazing initiative in my point of view yeah i had a i had another mentor very young larry edoff who was really my he was my elementary school music teacher who became my piano teacher my mentor he took me to my first studio really showed me a lot of what producing was. And he once told me, say yes to everything. He told me that when I was like 15. Oh, and I couldn't agree more. That's, that's it. Amazing. You just say yes to literally everything until you get to the point where you can discern your projects, you know, but- You know what's interesting about that? Um, I was at the mall the other day with Joe. Uh, for those of you that don't know Joe, Joe is like my business partner. And uh, we own Drum Forge together when we also do all the mixing stuff together. And, you know, he's been with me for over five years. He's just an absolute beast. So good at what he does. So we were taking the new building intern that interns for the guy across the hall. And we're taking him out. We're trying to straighten him up. He's a young 20-year-old kid. And, like, I'm at the mall and I see this guy that I know that sells, like, shoe shine. And this guy is one of the best natural salesmen I've ever met. I mean, he is, like, straight hustler. And... I'm out there because I know him and, you know, I like to bust his balls when I go in there because, you know, you can't sell me because I'm a pro salesman too and I love selling. And, uh, but it's an important skill to learn as a producer, you know, because like when somebody comes in, you know, half of what you're doing is selling. You're selling the band and an idea. You're selling the the label that the song's a hit. You're selling the, uh, you know, the client that they need to come and work with you versus the other 10 guys that may be more famous than you. So I'm like, I'm like, Ryan, you need to learn the skill. And this guy flat out offered the intern a job. He's like, man, come work for me for a week. And he was like, oh, I don't know. I'm like, why didn't you take that opportunity? And I chewed him out on the car ride home. You know, me and Joe were like, I can't believe you didn't do that, man. Like working with that guy would change your life for a week. That guy has got, yeah, it, you know, you got to say yes to everything. So I just wanted to, to mirror what you're just saying, because Ryan just missed a great opportunity to take a skill that he needs to be successful, which is be able to sell himself and have some fucking confidence, which he lacks. And he, uh, I, it just, it just killed me to watch it. Cause I would have been, I was like, yes. <laughs> yeah. You got to say yes. And the key is like, I always, I, I never think about it as selling something as the key is just believing, right? Like genuinely yeah. believing. And that's what people feel, you know, when you're genuinely behind the creation that you have going, the vision of the band and, and the, you know, and always being honest with the people you're working with about what you think is the right path, you know, so you guys can make a choice if it's the best way, you know, if, if working together is the best thing, you know? Yeah, I mean? absolutely. And, you know, part of being, and what I mean by, by selling, because people make this distinction all the time, like we'll put an ad on Facebook and then like, you know, there's always like five people that are vocal and everybody else, you know, they're just like, hell yeah. But there's always like those couple of people that are like, man, this is bullshit. You know, they just hate marketing for whatever reason. And they don't necessarily understand that like, you're not trying to sell them you're, you're trying to solve problems. So it's like when you're working That's with right. a, That's right. a band, you know, you're not trying to like sell them and manipulate them. What you're trying to do is get out false belief patterns in their head and reframe them so that you can help them help themselves. And you, they'll be open to the ideas that they need because, you know, we as individuals are usually the most blind to what we need to do the most in our careers. We have the most uh, self-delusion or self-doubt. You know, there's a lot of different things that hold people back from success. And it's like, sometimes a great producer can walk into your room and look you in the eye 
and can take your frame of mind, all the things that they're struggling with, they can see it from an external point of view and they can look at you and they can t- explain to you and break through all those things that are holding you back mentally. And then it's like lifting the cloud from the artist and they're like, I know what I need to do now. And that's, I feel like a hallmark of great uh, producers, you know? So that's what I mean by like one example of what I mean by being a great salesman, like learning how to read people and to get through the objectives that you need to get that you are hired for so you can be effective with the artist and really take that project to the next level. Yeah, it's invaluable and it's based off of trust and and honesty, you know. Absolutely. Um, that's and you know, people feel that. And and your your everything you've said is is absolutely right. Yeah, you can't just like you people think that I mean, yeah, okay, there's a lot of salesmen out there trying to pull a fast one, but we're not selling cars here. You know what I mean? Like this is music. We're selling art, passion, careers, like inspiration. You know, there's a lot of different things. So it's like, you know, you as a producer, your job is to like look at a project and just sit down and be like, what's the vision and really take it to the next level because sometimes the artists like, you know, the answer is right in front of their face, but they have a, a belief system or like a doubt or something that's clouding them. And if you can lift that shroud, they can then perform at peak. And that is where, you know, the magic really happens. Yeah. And, and just going back just a moment, like, you know, I've been collecting Howardisms for 10, close to 10 years now. <laughs> and I just still remember this. I think I was, I must've been 20 when he said this to me, he goes, if you're a producer, your job is to produce. Literally, there has to be a product, you know, and if you can cross the finish line, you'll be ahead of 99% of the other people out there trying to That's do what you're doing. So true. That and is so true. Yeah. They're just, yeah, can't, I, I just can't stress that enough for, you know, people, people coming up and people like really trying to do this you know, finishing what you're doing and putting it out there so people can see what you do is everything. And it can be really, really difficult to get artists to cross the finish line, you know? Yeah. And there's a lot of obstacles. And I I feel like, you know, if you're one of those people sitting at home, maybe that just working on local artists and, you know, you're, you're aspiring to want to go up to the big, big, big stuff. This is the stuff at the top level that is really, really intense is that there's a lot of politics. So you may have a vision as a producer with an artist, but the A&R guy might have a totally different vision. And uh, maybe the manager has a different vision and you have all these different visions. And it's like your job as the producer is to bring all these people together and find that sweet spot where, you know, the art can live and still be authentic. Yeah, you have to navigate it. And the truth is collaboration almost always yields a better product. So like in a better creation, but you do have to navigate, you know, you do have to be discerning about whose feedback you're taking in, how you're applying it, when you're applying it, when you're sharing everyone's feedback with each other to keep the process going and to make sure that everybody stays, you know, everybody stays on the path and, and enjoys the process. You know? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I really wanted to dig in with you here, because I think you're excellent at this and having worked with you and like, we just slay songs out crazily. I'll give you an example of something we recently did. So um, for everybody listening, we did a single here for Miyavi and I don't know the full side of the story and you're half Lenny. Maybe you can tell that, but like, basically it was something like you guys got together and just last minute threw down a song. And then in three days, that song went from like an idea in your guy's head to fully mixed, approved, 
and turned into the label on a time crunch in between tour dates or something crazy like that. Was that, are you talking about Pink Spider? I, I think that might've been it. This was like maybe a month ago. We were talking about, um, like the label was so happy that we just like completely ripped this song out of nowhere in three yeah, days. It was crazy. It was like, wow. It's actually a cover of a very famous, uh, like Japanese 90s rock song uh, by a really famous guitarist. So uh, I, he was, used to be the guitarist of X Japan is my understanding. And they were doing a tribute album. And, right. and um, uh, all be told, it actually ended up being a crunch time because of uh, a miscommunication between me, the manager and the label. And what we thought was the deadline for the demo was actually the deadline for the master. Now, <laughs> so luckily we were, uh, I, I was ahead of the process. So it, but it was true. Basically I was already in Japan and we were preparing for tour and we weren't planning on really doing any production for a few days. Luckily, you know, my programmer, Johnny Litton, and he co-produces a lot of the stuff with me, including Johnny's that amazing. song. He's incredible. And Sean Bow, who's just, he's my basically production and writing partner as well. And also he's also amazing. just, yeah. And on tour with Miyavi, also on the moment. Sean uh, is somebody for, for reference. Sean is how I actually met Lenny and somebody I've been working with since he's been about 15 or 16 years old. And one of those kids that it was in my market that I just spotted a star and I'm like, I need to teach this kid how to be successful. And, uh, you know, now look where he is and what he's doing. It's incredible. Yeah. And he linked us up, which has just been invaluable. You know, that's really the team now. And, and so, yeah, we had three days to turn this whole thing around and balancing the time difference and, you know, the mix revisions, as you know, you know, it takes time for a mix to sit in sometimes. So it was, it's really hard, but we got it all done. Basically I didn't sleep for two and a half days. Um, and <laughs> hey, we knocked that out. Yeah. Which I hate doing, but you got to do it sometimes. And yeah. And then everybody was happy, you know, and, and then you prove that you can get that done. And now you're the guy who gets things done. Oh, we need this to get done. We should go to Lenny and, you know, Lenny and his team, they'll make it happen. So yeah, you know, when I saw you want to establish and say, um, is like one of Miyavi's upper management people, like he does all of his day-to-day -day stuff. And say, when I saw him at Nam, he stopped me and he was just like, thank me. He's like, dude, I just want to say thanks. Like this, the rate of speed that you guys are turning around mixes at is incredible. And it's actually allowing us to speed up our production time and our release time. And it's like making us a more profitable business. And like, you know, how Japanese people are just so about efficiency. I mean, yeah. so well, I guess so are you and I, but um, it was nice to hear because, um, they, you know, being the mixer, it's kind of like at the end of the chain, people are just like, does it sound good? Okay, great. No one cares. So, you know, but to hear that it was actually helping them run more effectively as a business was like, I kind of said the, like the businessman of me sat back and smiled and I'm like, yeah, baby. <laughs> yeah. Well, Joel, I got to tell you that I've never worked with a mixer that has your process and it fits so well into what I'm trying to do with my business and how I produce my records. And I think it fits so well into how modern records are being made, especially it's kind of, it can be less and less common to have an outside mixer. 
Um, and so many mixers are really, how do you say, you know, if you go past three or four revisions, you know, there can be a little attitude or, you know, things like that you run into <laughs> occasionally, you know, or there's, you know, you know how it is, uh, which, which yeah, I get, I, I mean, I totally get, but I have to say just the workflow that, and I don't know if you do this with every client, but the workflow that we have is so efficient. Basically we, we set us, we decide, you know, Joel tells me when he's going to get me the mix. And then I tell him when I'm going to have, you know, let's say an hour of free time. And we just sit and sometimes for an hour, sometimes two, if, you know, if it's multiple songs or if it's a really tough mix and we'll just go back and forth, he'll, you know, literally do the revisions in 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And I'll sit, you know, I'll do a little something while he's doing the revisions. Then I listen, I send it, you know, while I'm listening, you do a little something else. And we just go Usually back. Usually something, another revision for something else. Yeah. Like I optimize every minute of my day. Yeah, <laughs> but it's so productive and so useful. And I always know that by the end of those sessions, basically I'm going to be happy with the mix. And then we send it off to management and Miyavi. And then Miyavi does that process in his own way. But it's basically already there. Yeah, like, and then we just get it done. But, but I mean, that's how... Um, there's something to be said for creating systems and this is going to be relevant because, um, last year I put out a course called speed mixing, how to mix over 500 songs a year. And there's a clear distinction that has to be made. Cause when you say something like that, like, yeah, you know, it's a good title and it's a good hook. So, but it sounds kind of marketing. So people are like, well, you must be compromising quality or you must, you know, like people are trying to always like shoot the hole in it. I'm like, no, I'm talking about creating a system that allows you to be insanely efficient and more importantly, effective with the time that you're using. So when you sit down, you know, you are actually working on the shit that matters, not like, oh, got to set up a guitar bus. Oh, no, I got to set up a vocal bus. Hmm. Which compressor am I going to try today on the vocals? Let's audition all 27 of them. I'm going to hand instantiate every single one of them. And, <laughs> and, and you know, five hours later, you still haven't done the most important thing. And that's mix the fucking song. So it's like, I built an entire system from everything from client interaction um, that allows you to kind of knock all that stuff out and do that. And we're that, that's actually coming out. We're doing the second version and we we crushed that course last year. We, we ran it through people and it just blew their minds and I, I can't wait to bring it back. So the, the point is, is like, I sat down years ago because when I was doing this, I was working with like local bands. And that was the beginning for me. It was like band would come in, they'd be like, dude, we only got you know, we can only afford to pay you for five days to do five songs. Well, I mean, God, try doing five songs in five days, right? And I'm talking like mixed and mastered. Here's your master. Here's your payment. Have a nice day, 5 p.m. Friday. And they come in on Monday. So um, that, that was crazy. So a lot of that was developed. And then when I got an assistant, like Joe and I really sat down and just like analyzed every little part of our, like the way we were interacting. And then like when Joey came involved and we started mixing a lot of stuff with Joey, um, we were clearing like 50, 60 songs a month for years. And it was like nuts. And again, without, in my opinion, compromising any type of quality, but it was just like, a lot of people don't understand what actual mixing is. You know, they think it's like uh, setting up a bus and routing and all that shit can be done for you and should be done for you um, right off the bat. And then you can sit down and focus on what's most important. It's like when you hit play for the first time as the mixer, what is the vibe of the song with the producer? And like, what is the energy? What are you feeling that song? And then you can, you can, you can drive her home. So um, I guess my point is just like having a system like that or like we've developed together 
it, it just allows you to rock and roll and it's just so seamless. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't have said any of that better myself. And uh, I just want to take a moment and give thanks for Joe Wolitz. <laughs> he, yeah. you know, he without whom none of the sessions would be built. Yeah, I mean, that's an understatement. Like when I get something from Joe, it's like I hit play and it already sounds, it's already like 80 to 90% there. You know what I, I mean? I, use, I, I pretty much just have to balance an EQ and check a couple meter things and make sure like, because I know what I'm going to use. And if I want to slop something out, it's already built into the template so I can just quickly audition. So it's like if we have to make a guitar tone, for example, he'll have three of them in there. And he's like amazing at designing sound design type, like guitar tones. And I suck at it. I, I know how to mix the shit. Like I'm not the best at like, you know, he's the nerd with that stuff. So like, he'll just make it and I'll sit back and just be like, yes, no, yeah, that's the one, boom. All right, but it's already gain structured. It's already like hitting the limiter exactly where I want it. And then I'm just like, does it need EQ? How is it fitting in the thing? Does it need balance? Do I need, you know what I mean? And it's like, I can focus on mixing it and not sitting there and like, boy, if I add a little bit more treble or presence on the amp, is it, if I change the gain structuring, is it going, he already optimizes all that stuff for me. So, I mean, that's just shows you the level of efficiency. Yeah. And you know, what you said about mixing 500 songs a year, one thing that is consistent throughout history is the more you do, the greater chance you have of success. You know, yeah. when you look at even co like composers, you know, Beethoven, Mozart, statistically speaking, their most famous pieces, um, some of them were written when they were young, some old, some in the middle. But one thing that's consistent is they were all written at the most prolific times of their life when they were writing the most material. So the more songs, you know, if you're a mixer, the more songs you're mixing a year, the, w the higher chance you have of one of those, you know, being a hit. And just like if you're a songwriter, the higher, Absolutely. the more songs you write. If you're a producer, the more songs you produce. So, yeah. Now it's interesting you say this because I think um, from what I understand, and you can, I guess, tell the story better than anybody. I heard that like Howard was one of the first people as a producer to kind of pioneer that sort of workflow where he could make several records at once and, you know, have like a really amazing team. So this is something, like I said, I kind of really want to deep dive into was like building a team, uh, you know, what kind of people to hire, how to build a team, how to manage a team and things like that. But, you know, Howard was like one of the first guys, if I understand correctly, that really started doing this as a producer. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I don't think anybody in history before or after has done it on the scope that he was doing it. I mean, the guy was making over 10 records a year. <laughs> yeah, that's when when he was intense. flying, you know. So, yeah, I you know, he's an aeronautics engineer by trade actually. He went to school. He was literally when people say this isn't uh rocket science, he actually was a rocket scientist. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he took he, he'll say this, you know, he took what he learned from the assembly line. And he applied it to the studio. You know, the best engineer, you know, the best musicians with the best instruments working with the best engineer, you know, you get the best parts and the best sounds and the best editor. And then by the time, you know, you get the files, you can't lose. And everybody's working separately. Like when I worked for Howard, actually what I started doing in the beginning was programming and string arrangements. And right. while the basically... The song, which we all know is the foundation and the most important thing, the song and the demo were always really ironed out. 
everybody knew where they were heading. Like that had been workshopped to pieces. And then everyone broke off and did what they did at the same time. Drums and bass and guitars were being recorded while I was programming, you know, doing any keys or strings. And Howard was cutting the vocals at the same time over the demo track. And then it would get all brought, it would all get brought together by Hatch, who engineers all the Miyavi stuff and engineers all my stuff and is just He's incredible. Uh, he's incredible. Oh man. And I can't wait to do a Miyavi nail the mix so people can hear what Hatch's tones are like because they're just gonna open up and be like, damn, I need to work on my guitar tone game. It's unreal. <laughs> I've never met an engineer more in control of sound. Like if you're like, oh Hatch, I want this to sound uh sound like a rubber band. I want the guitar to sound more rubbery, <laughs> you know, like I what? need a frog farting on a tulip yeah. out of a Vox. I mean, amp. he disappears, <laughs> he disappears and he's always like, mm, uh, give me a sec. And he disappears. He'll get a cup. I've seen him literally get a cup, cut a hole in it. Oh, no, cut a bigger hole in it. I don't know what the hell he's doing with it. He goes in the other room and then, uh, you know, he he hits, you know, he hits the mute button off and there it is. The guitar sounds more rubbery. And I'm like, all right, sweet. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> you know, the tones you guys send me, I, I'm always just like, you know, like it starts with like Johnny's programming, like the samples he uses. I'm, I just like look at the drums and I'm like, you know, Joe will like open the song, like, how does it sound? And he just looks at me and he smiles and I'm like, it's going to be a good day today. Yeah, <laughs> because- the sample choice. Johnny's sample choice is just unparalleled. It's yeah, really it just, true. He's just a weapon. I mean, your whole team is like that. It's like everybody. So I, I listen to the drums. I'm like, boy, that already sounds incredible. Like, let's just not fuck it up and just give it a little bit of sauce. All right, guitars. Cool. Let's just clean up a couple of little problem areas. But my God, these sound incredible. That just, you know, get, get that going where it needs to hit the vocal. Everything is always just like totally well done. And that was something that really blew my mind on the Miyavi record. When I opened those stem, you know, like the session up and I started digging into the multi-tracks, like I walked in the first day when we started mixing the first song for that album. And how and Joe was just, he just looks at me. He's like, dude, you're going to love this. I'm like, yeah. And then I opened it up on my computer and I hit play and I'm like, wow, that sounds really good. Um, I should probably, do I need, oh boy. Um, uh, uh, it sounds, it sounds like a mix. Like let's, let's, let's get in and start tweaking this a little bit, but man, wow. Like seriously, that doesn't happen every day. As you know, and we've talked about this and, uh, the key is getting people who are better than you at what they do, you know, like that's their passion. Like Johnny loves sounds. He loves little sounds. He listens to records for the things that are 18 decibels down in the back. And, you know, this is what he lives for, you know, and like Hatch lives for recording live sound. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I know with your team and your business all the way down to the people who do the programming on your plugins, That's the philosophy. And when you're putting your team together, that's really the key. People have to just love what they're doing that fits into the bigger picture of, you know, the vision for your company. And then everyone has to trust in your vision and that you're going to take, you know, you're going to lead everybody where they need to go. And, and, you know, and that everyone's input is valued and appreciated. And of course, if you feel like these people are amazing at what they do and this is their passion, you trust them in a way to lead you 
in that specific area, you know? Absolutely. And yeah, and it's really, it's invaluable when you have people on your team that, you know, that can do that for you. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Then, at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mixed the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for your use in your portfolio, so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those who really want to step up the game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhanced, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 40 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-one office hour sessions with us and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes on a live video stream, fix it up, and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills and your audio career, head over to urmacademy.com to find out more. So when you're building your team, because somebody listening to this might be like, all right, well, you know, I'm, I'm starting to climb up the ladder a little bit. And I'm starting to think about outsourcing. Like, how do you go and find these people? I'll give you an, an example from my life. So to do Unstoppable Recording Machine here, um, I, I've always had like really ambitious dreams and goals of what I wanted to do since I was probably like 18 or 19 years old. I wanted to be like a badass entrepreneur. And I could never find like the right business partners. And like, you know, like the first person I met that was really amazing was Joe. Um, then, you know, I got Joey and Aal in my life and like all the people that I work with now, I, you know, I look for stars and it's a little bit easier now than it was, but it, it took me about 10 to 15 years of my life to find the right people to work with, to achieve the kind of things I was dreaming about in my head. So like, where do you, where would you recommend to somebody who like, is, you know, a decently established or like even budding producer that's thinking, all right, you know, like I don't like recording guitars. I'm not that good at it. I don't like editing. I'm not that good at it. But man, I know how to drive a song home and work with a band and get, you know, so how, how where do they start looking for people and how do they acquire them? That's a great question. Um, I, I want to think about, I mean, one thing I can tell you quite con- concretely is I work very closely with my university where I went to college and I take interns every year. Um, And I'm always talking with my professors, like I'm doing guest lectures there and I'm always looking for students in the class that stand out. And I'm always asking my professors, you know, on the inside, yo, who is it? Who is it? Like who's coming out to LA this year, you know? And, um, And it's been really 
fruitful and really productive. And I've met, um, I've worked with people on the business side now and on the tech side. Uh, Johnny was the first guy actually that I ever, um, first intern I ever found from Drexel. And he came out here and he just never went back. And, <laughs> uh, you know, he was just so kick ass. And yeah, and I've had that experience now with two or three interns. And yeah, that's so contact your it's honestly not a bad idea. I mean, there are music industry programs all over now. Contact a university in your area. Hey, I'm a local producer uh, and I'm looking you know, for an intern or I'm looking for an assistant, you know, that, you know, for a very, for very low pay, but something, you know, or someone who wants to work for credit and you never know what you're, you know, you never know what you're going to find. Usually if the top kid in the program, he's pretty freaking good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's always like one or two, you know, that has a great attitude. You know, I gave, uh, I did like an AES chapter thing in Arizona and, you know, I had a, a bunch of kids and I lectured for like four hours on Skype and there was like this one person that just really stood out and I uh, just kept asking all these questions and, you know, they hit me up afterwards and I gave them some advice and like, from my point of view, it's like, people all ask me all the time, how do you get an internship? How do you get this? And I'm just like, dude, you just got to attack that shit. Like there are a lot of really competent, capable people who are successful out in the market that are just struggling to find good people to come work on their teams. And all you got to do is hit up enough people and just show them that you are the real deal and you're going to work hard and you're going to be committed and you're going to, you know, you want to find your thing. And uh, when you show that kind of value, I mean, to me, it comes down to, you know, just really assessing like, okay, who do I need on my team? I'm thinking, and then I go out and I, and I try to hit up everybody that I need. No. So, you know, having good networking, for example, and uh, just looking for like people that stand out that are like, you know, I go around like the URMPPC now sometimes and I look like, you know, who's, who's good at graphics and a bunch of people will apply. You'll go, you'll look through like 50 things. Then all of a sudden you'll see one person that really stands out. So you throw them a test and if they kill it, then boom, you know, you, you got a star and then you can nurture that relationship. So, you know, you just got to like reach out, find people and just really look for people that stand out. Yeah, you got to put yourself out there. You got to create things. You got to put them out there. You got to promote it. I mean, you got to get, you got to get behind yourself. You know what I mean? You can't Absolutely. just make songs in your bedroom. And, and honestly, you create this content, you know, sometimes as a producer, you create the content and then the band goes and then, you know, and then it disappears, right? That maybe the band pushes it, maybe they don't, maybe they break up, maybe this. But if you have created something that you really believe in, do not be afraid to get involved beyond just the role of the music. And that's been something that's been really, really important and helpful in my career with- Absolutely, with I like not agree more. Yeah, like with Miavi, you know, from the moment I saw that guy, I was like, this guy's it. Like- so special, such a creator, such a powerful message, just, you know, in a sea, I always say in Japan, you know, in a room of 
2,000 people, everyone wearing black, I can find Miyavi in three and a half seconds. <laughs> you know? He definitely has his brand just on point. He just radiates it. something, you know? He has that thing that, you know, that makes him a star. And he has something that he wants to share with the world. So my point being, I, you know... I put I help produce the live show now. I place Johnny and Sean in the show. I also like, you know, this last week I pitched Miyavi for Good Morning America because I had a connection there. You know, it goes beyond. You make this content, you make, you know, you find people you really believe in, and then you do everything you can to bring that material out into the world. You know, so yeah. If you really have something you believe in, then, you know, I actually would really encourage producers to promote it and, you know, not just leave it up to a manager or a band or to the music <laughs> itself to find its way into the world. You know what I mean? That's such a strong message, Lenny. And, you know, anybody that's listened to like my live rants and really follows some of the stuff we do here at URM. Um, knows that I am always beating the crap out of the drum that says you have to create more value for your clients. I mean, I'll give you an example. A perfect example is this conversation is possible because I took a kid named Sean and he didn't just come into my studio record and go home. I sat down and I developed him. I trained him. I worked with him through several different projects. Hell, I'm still mixing shit for him, uh, you know, back like over 10 years later. And, you know, I've always been in touch like, hey, dude, you're in LA. How's it going? You know, what's new in your life? Or, you know, he needs advice. Like I want to audition for this or I want to do this or I'm thinking, you know what I mean? Like just really trying to help people genuinely because you care and you believe in what they're doing. You see the talent and, you know, sometimes that gets reciprocated back on you when you don't expect it. And it takes you down crazy journeys. A perfect example of that is you guys flew me out to Japan after we did the last Miyabi record. And man, we had a lot of fun in two weeks. So it was uh, a <laughs> really was, incredible experience. That was one of the most memorable trips of my life for sure. And it, that was, that was an amazing thing, right? Because we had just made Samurai Sessions volume two, you know, and the whole team was there, you know, except for Hatch, but he was there yeah. in spirit. And but we met Hatch before, I met Hatch before we left. So that's it was right. like, that's he, was, right. he was there in principle. <laughs> oh yeah. Me, you, Miyavi, Johnny, Sean, and then, of course, Say and Mars and everyone on the management side. So, yeah, that was really special. Yeah, that was just amazing. So, I mean, that just goes to show you, you know, it's like if you create value for people in advance of what they're paying you for um, and that you believe in them, you know, there's a lot of things you can do when you believe in a project to really drive it home. And I mean, I've pitched bands before. I've developed bands, you know, and I never got paid for most of that stuff, but a lot, of, a lot of the bands that like really did something with that or the artists, you know, that came back years later and, you know, they brought me good records or, um, introduced me to people that changed my life. And, uh, I mean, that's how I met uh, my business partner, Joey. I, uh, the same band that Sean was in, um, we went down to Joey's and, uh, he mixed and I ended up producing cause they only had four days. And like, I met Joey and we were like brothers from another mother, man. We were just like, we both used Cubase. We both were self-taught dudes, like rock. He was in his garage. I was in like my mom's basement and we were like both figuring stuff out on our own. And uh, we all came to the same conclusions. And like, when we both saw that we had that passion, um, we've been friends ever since. So I think that's really amazing. So I wanted to dive into, um, 
I think that's really interesting on like just what makes a great team. Um, and you can obviously see why you've achieved so much and been so successful. Let's talk about like actual writing of songs. And this is something I feel like we don't really get to dive into too much over here at URM because, you know, we have such a large metal and rock audience and, uh, I really want to bring in, and we're working on bringing in some other genre stuff, but you know, like pop, the pop world is all about just songwriting, song, 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 songs, you know, you know, metal, like people care about guitar tone and snare drums and, you know, breakdowns and stuff like that. In the pop world, they're like, dude, is it a hit? Is it a, so what do you think makes a great song, Lenny? And like, how, how was your, talk about your songwriting process. Oh, what makes a great song? So a lot of times, um, we're, quote unquote, selling feelings, right? So a great song is just a song that comes on and you feel it. You feel something. You feel like dancing. You feel like you miss somebody. Um, you feel like you're thinking about a certain time in your life. So I think that blanket statement, it's just a great song is a song that makes you feel something. And then a hit song is a song that makes everybody feel something. <laughs> You know? Right. And, and that, by the way, that may be, I hate this song, you know, for every person that hates a song passionately, another person will love it is my theory. So absolutely, it's about, I mean, look at it's about some of the feeling, viral stuff. Yeah. It's about strong feelings. So yeah, let me actually amend that. It's about strong feelings. The worst thing that I can, you know, the worst, the, the worst thing that can happen to me when I'm playing someone for a song is if they think it's good <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, oh, it's good. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, and you're just like, oh, fuck. You know, <laughs> if someone says, I really don't like that, man, or I don't honestly, dude, that lyric is just like, I can't stand it. I'm like, okay. That's something, you know? Yes. I might be onto something. And in fact, in fact, you know, Howard kind of taught me this to train myself, even when I'm listening to songs and auditioning songs for projects, if I hate something to train myself to think, wait a minute, maybe there's something here. <laughs> yeah, because absolutely. I can't stand this. So, you know, there's probably, it's making me feel something. So there's probably something worth exploring here. So that's just something you can't forget, you know? And I think that's like the hardest thing to get over too as a producer. Like when you grow up, you have your, obviously your like favorite genre, at least most people do. Um, and especially in metal, like if you come up listening to like anything heavy, you're just like, you know, you like your 10 year time period and everything else is a bunch of poser crap and everything else sucks and has no talent. I mean, that's just like a, such an elitist, typical metal attitude. And um, the hard part, like the hardest part for me when I was in that like macho 25 year old, like kid mindset, it was like realizing that I actually liked pop music, even though I fucking detested it. Like I hated pop more than anything on earth. And one day I was over <laughs> at my buddy's house, dude, and Britney Spears Toxic came on for like 15 oh. seconds. I caught the first round of the hook and I'm like, fuck this shit, turn this off. And my drummer's like, yeah, man, this is bullshit. Hits the button. And we're like, you know, we went downstairs and played like thrash metal riffs to like compensate for the pop. That damn song, dude, was in my head for like two and a half weeks. I'm, oh, the taste of the, I'm like, oh dude, my God. That I song will convert, song. that song will convert anybody. It will convert dude, anybody. 
It's amazing. I yeah. then I just realized one day I'm like, am I just being too metal and elitist to realize that I love this fucking song? And I'm like, I, I love this song. And yeah. I just started listening to it. And man, I, I like if I showed people my pop Spotify playlist, like, dude, it would yeah. it's it's so embarrassing. The answer was it's, yes, you were. You were. And so um, you had to get over it, you know, because but that's such a weapon when you can do that as a producer, because then you can go in and be like, dude, this emo stuff is stupid. I don't get it. I'm old school. And then like you then you can sit down for three days and listen to it and then realize why people like it. And then once you understand why people like it, you can then like it, too. Like my latest thing is like mumble rap, man. Like everybody's like, man, I'm like, this is the shit. This is the coolest thing I've ever heard. Like I'm so into like uh, all that stuff now. And it, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it would have been impossible for me to listen to something like that. And it's, it's just like, so th I think that's such a great point. Yeah. And I also think there's, you know, if you're a writer and a producer, it's your duty to yourself to listen to everything, you know, and not, not in a way that you got to listen to something and copy it, but if something is resonating with the world, it's probably good to check it out, you know? And I even feel that way about, you know, hit TV shows, you know? Why Absolutely. is this resonating? You know, I'm always thinking about that in terms of art across all genres. And then also when you're listening back, why did this resonate, you know, back in the day, you know, depending on what you're listening to and when and getting the context and thinking about how your art relates to the world. You know, but absolutely as a writer, like I'm a really, really big believer in write what you know. And anytime I'm in a room with someone and someone starts talking about, well, if they did this or they did that, and I'm like, this song is never going to work because, <laughs> like, like, let's just stop right now. Who's they? You know, what are you talking about? Like, how are you going to write something that makes you feel something if you never felt that feeling? You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. You know, if I'm writing with someone who, like, let's say uh, there's this song with Leah Marie Johnson, DNA, and that song is about, um, you know, her f mother and father's tumultuous relationship growing up and how, you know, she sees some of these qualities in herself that she saw in her father, these negative qualities, but she can't stop her DNA. Sometimes she feels like that. And like, it's such a powerful and beautiful song. And while I couldn't, you know, I've not been in that story, but I think we can all relate to sometimes the feeling of not being able to control ourselves. So you don't necessarily have to have gone through the exact thing to collaborate with somebody and write. But, you know, if that experience wasn't her real life, there's no way we could have gotten to that place of just the vulnerability and the honesty, you know, of, you know, and having that song, that song has really reached and touched, uh, you know, a lot of people. It has, you know, over 20 million streams on Spotify. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people just feel it. Absolutely. So what is your songwriting process? You know, like when you sit down and you try to write a song, because there's always that feeling like, hey, I have to write this song in the next two days, but how do you make it authentic? How do you make it current? You know, there's a lot of like, that's really the challenge as a writer. 
I feel like. Yeah, I, I, it's different depending on who's in the room. You always got to read the room and read the energy and it depends. And it's also uh, a bit different if I'm writing with the artist or if I'm not. Um, if I'm writing with the artist, generally speaking, I just talk with them. Like we go out in the courtyard away from instruments and we just talk and we share things about our lives and it's therapy, really. I don't know, you know, I I often like can't imagine people having to go into work and they're going through something and they just have to sit there and bottle it up and work on a spreadsheet. <laughs> like, you know, for our job, if I'm going through something or the artist comes in, I can't tell you the amount of times tears have been shed just talk, talking in the courtyard um, is countless. And uh, it doesn't always have to be sad, by the way, but, you know, it could be they... You know, they're just, we're just telling each other about our lives. And eventually somebody says something and I'm like, that would be a great song. And now we know what we, now we know where we're going, right? It's like, okay, this is the, you know, the lyric has just been said. So that's the feeling. Now we know what kind of chords we want to put to it. What's the best melody for this lyric? Like what's the best way to deliver, deliver this lyric and get the feeling across? Um, that's kind of my favorite way, honestly, because you won't miss. Your roadmap is laid out. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, that's amazing. It's so, like you're sitting there looking for that one moment of a gem yeah. and like, boom, that's what you're going to attack. Dude. And then your job as the producer is to translate into into instruments. You just mixed a song by Happy Sometimes that came out this week called Heartbreaker. Yes. And, and that was a difficult song to mix. It was <laughs> a difficult song really... to mix. And I'll tell you what, we talked for over five hours without writing a note before that title came to us, Heartbreaker. And the line is, Heartbreaker better not cry. You know, she had just been through something where she basically broke up with somebody and, you know, or told someone she didn't want to be with them and they were really hurt. And she was also hurt, you know? And yeah, that just came up like, wow, it's really, it's often thought about like the person who breaks the heart they better not cry, right? They're always the villain. Right. And that just came up from her life and from us talking about it. And after that, the song kind of wrote itself. You know what I mean? Like when you have a lyric, Heartbreaker Better Not Cry, you kind of know where that song's going. Well, she's definitely not going to be screaming over blast beats and distorted guitars. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then Sean was in there. So it helps to have the man with 30 million melodies in his head. And then Kara is just the most incredible writer. So, you know, there was no way we were going to miss, you know, you when just you have a, that catalyst. Yeah. When you had the concept, you know, and that's not to be said, like, so, so much can be said for where you get inspiration. Like if you have a track guy who, you know, just has, you know, can put on a beat to make you feel something and make you get in a mood. And then that makes you think of something, you know, that's another way to do it, you know? Absolutely. And Johnny's just got to write that 20 pack. <laughs> that's right. And then <clears throat> I work with uh, Ray Dalton, who another unbelievable artist and creator who just has something inside of him that has to come out. And so he loves to Ray just get on. Amazing. The, he loves I to love just that track get, he did with Macklemore. Thank you. Yeah. He loves to just get on the mic and sing. 
And, you know, that's what Ray's on this earth to do, to, you know, spread goodness and sing. And basically it just comes out of him and then we get the feeling from his melody. And a lot of times lyrics just come out of him as well. You know, kind of the sounds he's using, we're like, oh, that kind of sounds like that. So it, it really depends on who you're working with. Yeah, everybody has their own discovery process. And, you know, That's it's really right. just about guiding it in and having the ear and the eye and, you know, I, the vision for what needs to get done. I think it's about creating a space where people feel safe enough to tap into the innermost feelings and have no inhibitions. Like, it's much more nerve wracking than you think to get on a mic with no idea what you're going to sing and just start singing over a track, which everybody should try, by the way, as therapy. <laughs> if you can't well, most sing- people, I equate it to dancing. Like most people yeah. won't even go and dance if they're out with their friends because they don't want to embarrass themselves and look stupid. But reality is none of, no one that you're with can dance any better. And they're all just afraid to get their asses out there anyways. And they, they don't want to feel stupid. So you might as well just go have fun and feel stupid later. Yeah, and you've never felt so good after a night where you've just danced your heart out. So yeah. if you can create a space where people feel like they can dance their heart out, you will get the material that moves you the most. You know what I mean? So, Absolutely. Um, yeah, I don't have any advice on how to do that, except I do share a lot about myself with the people I write with. You know, they know a lot about me. They know how I'm feeling. They know what I did over the weekend. You know, they know what I'm proud of, what I'm not proud of, you know? So, um, that's just, it's just about connecting with the people that you're creating with. That's like my best advice in terms of writing songs, connect just connect with the people, connect with yourself and, and yeah. And revise. Well, <laughs> well, it's no wonder that you're great at what you do. I mean, it just r radiates and I get the privilege of mixing a lot of these songs. So I, you know, I can, I can see the results of all the work and uh, it's pretty cool to, to see the process. So here's something that I think is also really interesting is that what's cool about working with you and your team, Lenny, is that we do a lot of stuff in a lot of different markets and you can't write the same kind of song, for example, that you would do in Japan as you would in like the US EDM market. So right. what advice would you give somebody if they want to go and work in different markets, which is a massive opportunity? Um, you know, for example, I have one number one song and of course it was in Japan, not in the US, but it doesn't matter. Like for me, I'm like, I finally got a number one. This is, this is like the most amazing thing as a mixer. Um, so to me, it's like a great honor and it's cool that it was somewhere else because I got to go there. I got to experience the culture. And, uh, so like as a writer, how the hell do you go in and attack stuff for different markets? Because it's a completely different mindset, especially when you cross cultural lines. That's true. It, it is really different. Uh, the first thing you got to do is obviously familiarize yourself and research. Um, but the most valuable thing you could do by far is team up with somebody who knows it naturally. So right. like I'm the only, like, you know, on Dancing With My Fingers, right? The two artists are Japanese, Miyavi and Daichi Miura. So yes. as long as they stay true to their... Um, you know, as long as like they stay true to themselves, it won't miss, you know, like 
I'm almost there at that point to like be the American spice, you know, or I'm something <laughs> a little different, you know, to come and shake it up, you know, but yeah. ultimately it's going to be funneled through their vision, their A&Rs, their management, um, and, and get there. But, but it's, it's really, you know, even on the writing side, you know, like obviously like Miyavi and Daichi are both a huge part of the writing. So um, that would honestly be my advice. And by the way, I also believe that's really true for going between genres. You know, like I worked with um, All That Remains and I wrote, I co-wrote every song on their last record, their legendary metal group from the Northeast. And that was such a unique and amazing experience. And I absolutely loved working with the guys and loved working, you know, with Phil, but I do not come from metal. Like I just, I don't like, I don't have the history. I don't have the knowledge, but Didn't you guys get a number one off that record. We did. We had a number one billboard. There that's you right. go. I mean, that that's just goes right. the show. So you wrote a number and one song, you co-wrote a number one in a genre that you don't even really do. I feel like that's proof in the pudding of your methodologies and your mindset. Yeah. And the key was obviously they are, it doesn't get, I mean, you know, more metal than them. Like, you know, they have the most knowledge and they've been around for however, you know, 15 years or something. Plus Sean was in the session and Sean comes from metal. So I was there to do what I was just talking about, which was just connect, connect yeah. with, connect with Phil and talk. And we just spent days. I mean, we spent a month, two months in the courtyard, just talking and like, you know, it was just my job to be the story guy. Like, what are we talking about? What is the feeling? And then Sean and Phil would then convert that, you know, into, you know, delivering it sonically, you know, but I really had to trust them to lead me, you know, in terms of, you know, oh man, you know, we would never say that or you know what I mean? Certain nuances, Absolutely. certain nuances. I had to trust. It's not them. metal enough, bro. We're going to lose all of our cred. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or like making the conscious decision to say, you know what, dude, we would never say this, but fuck it. And Phil took a lot of chances on this last record doing that, you know, um, making that decision to push the boundaries. Well, it definitely seems like it paid off. So Lenny, I know you got a hard cutoff here and you got to get going. So I just wanted to thank you for an amazing conversation. That was super interesting and we have so much more to talk about. So we'll have to do this again sometime. Joel, that's so fun. And uh, I'll talk to you later today about another song we got coming up. <laughs> all right, I'm ready to go. So thank you all and uh, for listening. And uh, Lenny, if they want to check out your work, where can they find you? Oh, uh, that's a great question. Young... Spielberg on Instagram, Y-U-N-G underscore S-P-I-E-L-B-U-R-G. Um, yeah, and go on my Instagram. That's the best place just to, you know, you'll see I post a lot of, uh, you know, I post a lot of clips of what I'm doing. And you'll also be able to see a lot of the artists I'm working with and links to a lot of the songs. Can I just say that like the actual young Spielberg's music that you're writing um, is possibly one of the sickest things I've heard in a long time. <laughs> I love yeah. it. Hopefully, hopefully uh, we'll do another podcast after that project launches.
Oh, please. I, I, the one song that I've done, I just, it's such a banger. Oh, I, I love club bangers. So I'll, yeah. I'll leave it there. So, all right, Lenny, thank you so much. Podcast theme. Boom. Sign up. To get in touch with the URM podcast, visit URM.com slash podcast and subscribe today.